You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. That correction, which frightens us, is a work of his love, not of his hatred. Shouldn't we wait with faith for a happy outcome from what we suffer? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by Stephen Charnock. It was preached in the late 1600s, either Ireland or England, one of those two places. Joel, the sermon this week uh, really takes a look at suffering as a concept, a subject people tend to kind of avoid. They don't really like to talk about suffering as much, and yet Charnock will explain to us how this is something that is used in our life for God's good. And Charnock is not a Puritan we have ever looked at before. We've looked at a lot of different Puritans uh, throughout our time on Revive Thoughts, but he lived during the stormy 1600s during the English Civil War and all this stuff going on at that time. So he was someone who was probably pretty familiar with suffering himself, as many of the people at that time were. If you like Puritans from this era, another one we did not that long ago was John Flavel, and I encourage you to go take a look at that one. Yeah, Stephen Charnock, um, one of the lesser known people from this era, uh, born in 1628 in London, and we know very little about his life growing up. In fact, the first thing that we can really find about him was his, when he went to college. He went to Emmanuel College, which was part of Cambridge at that time, and there he became a Christian. It seems like with uh, some of the professors there, he made relationships with some of the ministers at the school, and it seems by all accounts that they were the ones that led him to Christ at that time. And although being really smart, being a great student, he didn't seem to have a particular uh, course for ministry, desire for ministry. He actually ended up being a, a private tutor for rich families. You know, you'd hire him to come and tutor your kids. Eventually, he did get a job as a pastor after several years. And although he was a younger man, uh, he, you could tell he was passionate about his work. He was passionate about Christ. And in his early years of ministry, uh, we see lots of people coming to know the Lord in the early days of his ministry. But then the dreaded English Civil War broke out and throws a wrench in everyone's plans. The English Civil War, which we've talked about in other episodes, we won't go into all the details, but the, the monarchy comes down. During, for a time, there will be you know uh, people ruling it that aren't uh, the kings, but then after Oliver Cromwell dies, the, king, uh, the kingdom starts back up again, and there will be all this uh, consequences for the Christians who were not under the king who kind of fought against them, and a lot of the Puritans that we like will be in those groups of consequences. 
However, during the English Civil War, it had a jarring effect on the lives of many, but for Charnock, it was not actually all that bad. Uh, as for the reforms, since they were kind of taking over England at that time, Charnock um, kept getting promotions, and soon he was the chaplain to uh, chaplain and minister to Henry Cromwell. Now, Henry Cromwell, I didn't know much about him. If you want to read like a really confusing story, try reading just the Wikipedia of Henry Cromwell. He had so many things happen, especially while he was running Ireland at that time. But he's the fourth son of Oliver Cromwell. He kind of gets sent to run and look over things of Ireland. His life and time there is full of intrigue and confusions and rebellions and just it is very difficult to fully parse out. And Charnock would have been his minister, his chaplain, like his spiritual advisor during that time. I can't imagine. It was very easy. But he did very well for a few years. But once the Commonwealth came to an end, once the king was restored, once everything was kind of back to the way it was, uh, Cromwell's, you know, they're out of there. And obviously Charnock and all the Puritans, they're out too. They're on the outs and life is no longer going very well. And I just think that that would be kind of a, uh, a difficult, you know, transition to go from being, you know, the right-hand man to these big leaders to kind of just going back to being not only not a nobody, but you're kind of like an on-the-run on the lamb hiding out kind of guy yeah so when the king took back over and we've talked about this era lots of times on several different episodes uh, there were certain laws put in place to persecute puritans and really restrict what the puritans were able to do where they were able to preach what they were able to preach about a lot of proximity laws things like that and those rules fell on charnock as well and um, by all accounts, it seems like he just kind of waited them out. He worked on his studies during this time. He spoke publicly when he was legally allowed to, um, but most of the time he was kind of uh, quietly working behind the scenes. He was always involved in ministry. It's not like he ever abandoned ministry. And uh, there were moments where he was able to visit Holland and France where these rules weren't in place and he was able to do public ministry there. Um, but it seems like he kind of just abide he wasn't he wasn't pushing the boundaries during this time in 1675 uh, the rules became less severe and he was uh, eventually invited to co-pastor a small church which he happily does an old he kind of gets this old former mansion it even used to be like a king's getaway home and it turned into a church that people were using it for and he would preach in there for his last a few years of life. Now, I say last few years. He didn't know they were his last few years. He was 48 when he got the job. Um, he would die around the age of 53. And it, he thought he, I'm sure, thought he had another 20 years ahead of him. He did not, though. Now, he is most remembered for his discourses, his his sermons on the attributes of God. If you look up his books, it'll always say, like, discourses of. They were his sermons, and they were, you know, kind of turned into these books. Uh, they all come from his sermons at this time when they were preaching right now. And they are very highly recommended. People always say, if you can, read the Attributes of God series by him. He was much more theological than a lot of his peers, maybe because he spent so much time studying, waiting to get on the field. He had that kind of highbrow, very intellectual theology of, about him. And he was definitely more for the upper classes of his day. Charnock was in the middle of preaching through that Attributes of God series uh, when he died, again, at the pretty, not, I mean, not very old age of just 53, and he never was able to fully finish it. So if you do end up getting that book, you will not know the end of it because he never finished it. Yeah, so kind of a really interesting life from start to finish, right? It, it can't have been easy to go from preaching to governors and big crowds to hiding away and doing private, secretive ministry he had seen wars, he had experienced loss, and he had done ministry for 15 years underground, yet 
In this sermon on affliction, he gives a perspective on affliction not from man's eyes, but from God's eyes. Hebrews 12, 5-11 You have forgotten the command which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, or be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure discipline, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Won't we more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirit and live? For they indeed for a few days disciplined us as seemed best to them. But he, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness, now no disciplining seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit for righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Apostle, after having drawn a history of those illustrious souls that had displayed a good faith upon several occasions, in this chapter presses the believing Hebrews to be patient and have faith under those pressures they would meet in their Christian course. Next, the command of the Holy Spirit Drawn from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, My son, do not despise the disciplining of the Lord, or be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. Which being an instruction concerning the nature and use of afflictions God sends upon us, the apostle applies to the particular case of the Hebrews. Have you forgotten the command which speaks to you as to sons? Have you lost the memory of what God says in the word by his wisdom, Proverbs 3, where he commands his goodness? And he shows the obligation you have to listen to him by guaranteeing you the name of sons, the greatest glory and the highest comfort of a creature. Have you, says he, forgotten this? Do you forget to keep it in your minds, memories, heart, and intentions? The apostle is speaking here of the importance and advantages of afflictions. In verse 5, he orders us not to despise the disciplining of the Lord, nor to despair under it. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. This he backs with many motives in the following verses. Do not make light of afflictions. 1. One motive is in the word disciplining, padia, which is related to the instruction that a child is brought to the knowledge of things profitable for him. The word is used for the discipline, which comes from instruction. Another motive is from the author of afflictions, the Lord. Do not despise the disciplining of the Lord. Let us make application. 1. It must be with great care that we do not take lightly our afflictions, or to be dejected by them. The pain will keep us from despising an affliction itself, but we make light of it when we are careless about improving from it. We may be sensible of the pain even when we are not sensible to the profit, which may come to us by it. God forbids two extremes. The one is excess, the other a lack of courage. Both dishonor God. The one in his sovereignty, the other in his goodness and love. And both are harmful to the sufferer. We should receive the afflictions God sends 
with a humility without despair, with reverence without distrust, and keep ourselves from either fearing too much or not fearing God enough. Mix reverence with confidence. Adore the hand which strikes us. Rest in the goodness which He promises. This is the way to reap the fruit of afflictions. 2. All afflictions, let them be from whatever immediate causes are from the hand of God. Even if they seem to come from man, as loss of goods or other calamities, whether they are sickness, loss of loved ones, they are all given by the order of God for one and the same design, namely, our instruction. Human reason does not believe this. Some think afflictions come by chance, or look only to second causes and regard them not as wholesome instructions from God and the order of His providence. This should stop any impatient movement. It is fitting that we should be of the psalmist's temper. I was silent, and I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Psalm 39.9 Does the clay form say to him that formed it, Why did you this? We should say, as Eli, 1 Samuel 3.18, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him especially since infinite wisdom is joined with the sovereign authority of God, and when we are not able to understand the reason for His conduct, we should submit in His will and in His wisdom. It teaches us who to go to. That hand that strikes can only cease striking. When David has won against impatience, he awakens his prayer. Psalm 39.10 Remove your strokes from me. I am consumed with the blows of your hand. If Shimei casts a stone at David, it is the Lord who made him do it. If the sickness of our bodies rise against us, it is God that arms it, and it is He who must be found for aid. He alone can end whatever force He raises. It is our comfort that there is a sovereign God that we can make our moan to in our addresses. That our King that struck us is ready to heal us. How sweet is God towards his children groaning under afflictions. My son, do not despite, he says. He calls them his sons, his children. He gives them a title that shows he shares in their grief and their troubles. What father is there on earth unless he has lost all natural love who does not sympathize in the suffering of his children? All the affections of earth met together in one combined tenderness are not to be compared to the yearning affections of our Heavenly Father. Afflictions are not always sent by God in anger with His creatures, but sent by God as a Father. Here, it is easy to conceive that neither the intentions of God nor the outcome of a suffering can be anything other than happiness to those that are the children of God, since He gives the name of child to everyone whom He instructs as a Father by correction. It also teaches us to have a sense of the sufferings of others, the argument to impress this command is taken from the impulsive cause, the love of God. And the word translated discipline signifies such a chastisement as a father gives his son or a teacher his student. The afflictions of believers are effects of divine love. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Revelation 3.19 As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. They are not acts of divine revenge where God satisfies His justice, but of divine affection where He communicates His goodness. 
and draws the image of his son with more beauty and glory on his child. They are the acts of God, but not a sleepy and careless God, but a wise and loving father who takes all the care to train his children to his will and likeness. God does afflict others who were not the number of his beloved children. There are scarcely any among the sons of men that pass their life in a continual prosperity, exempt from all kinds of afflictions, and all these afflictions are from God as the governor of the world. Yet even though there is no difference between the sufferings of one and the other, and though the sufferings of believers are often more sharp than those of carnal men in outward appearance, yet there is a vast difference in the motives of them. Love makes him strike the believer, and fury makes him strike the unregenerate man. The design of the correction of the one is their profit, not their ruin. The strokes upon the other are often the first fruits of eternal punishment. For the world is mistaken in judging the afflictions of believers to be testimonies of God's anger and hatred. God acts towards the lost worldling as a lawgiver and a judge, but towards those that he has renewed and adopted... God acts in the role of a tender father. And who would judge the love of a tender father by the corrections which he inflicts upon a child who is so dear to him? Believers suffer by God not simply as he is a judge, but as a combination of judge and father. God does not intend vengeance on them, for though they are afflicted for sin, yet the goal is to improve them, reform them so that they may be worthy of a blessed inheritance. Lazarus, whom you love, is sick, was the speech of his sister to Christ. They were fearing, thinking that Christ's love departed from Lazarus with his health. No man has any reason to imagine himself the object of God's love on account of outward prosperity. God does not always love those that his providence keeps in good health and great ease. Such a foolish thought proceeds from an ignorance of eternity for they have too great a value of the things of this world. Temporary goods, a good reputation in the world, outward conveniences, and an uninterrupted health are effects of God's patience and common goodness, but not of His affection and choicest love. They are the marks of His affection when, by His grace, they are made means to conduct us to a better inheritance. But how often are they traps to us because of our corruption and improper use of them? How often does the health of the body destroy the health of the soul? And the prosperity of the flesh ruins the prosperity of the spirit. How often do riches and honors cement our hearts to the earth and expel any thoughts of heavenly paradise? How often does a portion in this world weaken many men's attempts to gain a portion in heaven? How often do earthly goods hinder our sanctification, which is the only means to a happy vision of God? How this should move us in our afflictions to a conduct pleasing to God. Shouldn't we trust the discipline that the love of God, which is both good and wise, ordains by His providence? Why should any distrust His loving Father by whom He knows He is afflicted? That correction which frightens us is a work of His love, not of His hatred. Shouldn't we wait with faith for a happy outcome from what we suffer? If we are affected, we should receive afflictions with a temper answerable to God and improve them for those holy ends for which God sends them. We should also bear them patiently since they are to improve the soul fit for heaven. It is not the love of the criminal, 
but the love of the laws which causes a judge to condemn and punish them. No wise man ever said that a prince punished rebels because he loved them, or that God makes the wicked suffer eternal punishment in hell because he loves them. It follows that the punishment of God inflicts on his children are not properly punishments of the same nature with those God ordains for unbelievers. So we have good reasons to bear them patiently. It is inexcusable to complain about an act of love. When the father scourges the child cries, and then he thinks his father hates him. It is the error of his childhood. But when he comes to adulthood, he will see it as false that his father did not love him. When a physician has cut you and give you bitter medicine, you never had any suspicion that he hated you. You have received all his charity and thought him more worthy of a reward after the fact. Shouldn't you treat God the same way? Moving on, no righteous man in the world is, or ever was, free from sin. God scourges every son that he receives. Sin is the cause of afflictions. If we were free from sin, we should be free from God's scourges. Affliction never cease until sin is destroyed, which will not be in this world. Justice finds enough in every believer in the world to punish, and mercy finds enough to pardon. It is against sin that we should turn our aim. What Satan would make us vent in impatience against God, let us manifest in a hatred of that which is the true cause of all the evils which in general or particular we suffer, sin. Let us strike sin as much as God strikes us, and it is but a grateful reason, since it is the best way that we can show our love to God. As He, in His strokes upon us, shows His love to us, let us take no rest until we have put that to death which God alone hates, sin. It is the death of sin, and not the death of the soul, which God designs in afflictions. While our disease remains, why should we think ill of the physician for giving us a cure? If he did not use the medicines, we then would have more reason to accuse him of a lack of pity. Wouldn't a father be considered very loving who would operate openly on his child himself when he saw there was a need for it? Now, in verse 7, the apostle speaks to a patient bearing the disciplined hand of God because he deals with them as a father with his sons, with a way of reward afterwards. If you endure disciplining, God deals with you as sons. God offers himself to you as a father to his sons. But as they are quick to think that a troublesome affliction is inconsistent with the love of God, the apostle contradicts such a thought by the question, What son is there that the father does not discipline? In verse 8, but if you are without disciplining, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. For if the Lord scourges every son he receives, it is clear that he leaves without discipline is not a true and legitimate son, but a stranger and unloved. Compare the lives of those children who have had the correction of their parents to the lives of those that have been left to themselves without it and the advantage of the one and miseries of the other will easily appear. Proverbs 13.1 A wise son hears the instructions of his father. Hear not in the Hebrew. A wise son is the instruction or discipline of his father. The Jews have a proverb. If you see a wise child, be sure that the father has disciplined him. 
God deals in this manner with his children, and there is a great need of it. For even though the regenerate are freed from the slavery of sin, they are clothed with flesh, and that flesh will lust against the Spirit. God not only disciplines us for our weakness, but to prevent them. And since the love which he bears us, and the salvation which he procured by his chastisements, does infinitely surpass the affections of the best and tenderest fathers. And the best fruit we can draw from our parents' discipline, we may well confess that no father in the world can be said to deal us as tenderly a father with his children as God does with believers. He offers himself to do a father's office. He is the world's king, but a believer's father. As he is the governor of the world, he treats men righteously in his judgments. As he is the father of believers, he treats them graciously in his afflictions. Good men may make mistakes in their rebukes, but God cannot. He is too wise to be deceived and too good not to make even his strokes become an excellent healing medicine. He does not smite us as enemies, nor only as criminals, but as children, not to punish us in his fury, but to refine us, to make us fit for him to take pleasure in, and to make us more like him in the frame and temper of our souls. This is the goal of a tender father disciplining his children, and this is the goal of God. But we should receive his corrections, not so much as a punishment, but as a blessing. Secondly, no child of God has avoided God's correcting hand. The apostle makes a challenge when he says, What son is there that the father never disciplines? None of those mentioned among the believing Hebrews in chapter 11 were without affliction. Noah had an affliction in his child, Genesis 12.10. Abraham and Jacob were afflicted with famine. Isaac was afflicted by Esau. Moses had to flee for his life. Job suffered the loss of his children and goods. Hezekiah had a dangerous sickness. To be under afflictions, then, is to travel in the road of all who have gone before. The apostle goes further, verse 8, and affirms that to not be disciplined is a certain sign of not being a member of God's family. But if you are without disciplining, then you are unloved and not sons. This is an argument from the opposite. They are unloved and not sons who are not corrected. Who is left without discipline? is not in the number of those he owns for his children. He goes further when he strengthens what he had spoken before, that God deals with those he afflicts as children. This is one of the clauses of the covenant which God has made with us in Jesus, which he does especially insert when he owns himself our God and Father, Psalm 89.32. He would visit them with a rod, but not take away his loving kindness. In the New Testament, God promises spiritual blessing. In the Old Testament, He promised temporary blessings. His people were not exempt from His discipline. In the New Testament, it is expressed that through afflictions, we must enter into the kingdom of heaven. His only Son must suffer and so go into glory. Afflictions are so far from being discouragements that where there is evidence of grace in the heart, there are actually proof of adoption. We might well doubt a relation to him if he took no care of us, that we were not his sheep if he never used his crook to pull us to him. If we were holy strangers, he would abandon us. His paternal rod is for his children, but his rod of iron is for his enemies. But now, in the ninth verse and the following verses, the apostle speaks to them of a reverence of God under his hand. Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. 
won't we more readily be subject to the Father of spirits and live? The fathers of our flesh have corrected us, and we gave them respect. Then how much are we to be subject to the Father of spirits, who disciplines us that we may live? But as there is this resemblance, there is a great difference. A man is but the father of the body, the weaker part of our natures, that part of us which we have in common with beasts. God is the father of our spirits, the more noble part, and that which makes us properly men. More submission is due to him who gives us more than to them who gives less. The love which fathers bear to their children is a passion, and many times is not regulated by reason. But the love of God is a true love, not mingled with any imperfection of too little or too much, and therefore does nothing without perfection and just reason. Once again, earthly fathers aim at the good of their children, but their ignorance is so great that often they make mistakes. For the knowledge of God is as perfect as his love, and the disciplines of his people for their good, and so a greater submission is due to him. Now how glorious is the condition of a true believer! He is the child of God, 1 John 3, 1. What manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God? It is an argument of great love to give his people such an honorable and a dear title, to call himself their father, as well as their God. It is not so strange that he should call all the pure spirits in heaven his children, but that he should call those that have defiled his image by that title. It is amazing that he should call himself a father to those who are by nature children of wrath, slaves to Satan, sold under sin, that they have nothing in them to please him by nature. Astonishing love that God should not think it a dishonor to himself to be called our father. If he is our father, what should we fear? Nothing passes in the world without his order. No evil arise to us without his will. Every affliction is the rod of his hand. The very thought that God is our Father should sweeten any grief. God is the creator of souls. The opposite requires that we should understand by this expression that God is the creator of souls because it is opposed to the fathers of the flesh. It also follows that the disciplined soul is more excellent than the bodies which we receive from earthly fathers. And we owe more submission and reverence to God and His disciplines than to those who have been only fathers of our bodies. Which the question states, shouldn't we listen to the Father of spirits and live? And live, or that we may live. This is an argument from the reward of a patient suffering. The apostle may be referring to the promise of life to children that honor their parents. As life was promised to them, so a spiritual and eternal life is promised to those that are patiently obedient under the hand of God. As in Israel, those that slighted the rebukes of their parents were stoned without pity. So will God handle those that kick against His discipline and make no profit of His rod. Correction causes life, not through work, but inerrantly. If we own God as a Father, we need to conduct ourselves towards Him as our Father. If we desire a happy and eternal life, we must subject ourselves to His providential hand, acknowledge the righteousness of His discipline, and our submission must be more reverential. In verse 10, For they for a few days disciplined us after their own pleasure, for He for our profit, that we might be partakers of His holiness. They truly for a few days disciplined us. Either death deprives them of, our, of their authority, or the age of their children matures them past it. Parents only take care to correct their children during the weakness of the childhood. 
when by ignorance and inexperience they are incapable of conducting themselves. They have a need for their parents to form their minds and make those impressions upon them so that they may govern themselves the rest of their life. But when they have arrived at years of maturity, they are left to govern themselves according to their own reasons, without using the rod to supply the lack of their understanding, and so that the corrections of earthly parents are but for a few years, only a little time. Here appears the advantage of God's discipline above that of earthly parents. God continues His care to us all our lives upon the earth, as long as we need it. He exercises a greater providence over us than earthly parents over their children. And here the apostle comforts us. It is but a little time that God subjects us to discipline. Only that part of our life which we are to pass on earth, which is but a small time compared to that of eternity, where we will be exempt from suffering. It bears infinitely less proportion to eternity than the least instant does to all the time from the creation to the end of the world. And so that the time of a believer's discipline is shorter than that of children under their parents. The motive of and rule that parents too often follow in their disciplining of their children is as they thought best. They have often a greater regard to their own passions than their children's benefits. They correct often in anger rather than with reason, having no other law but their own will. Their judgment is often deceived, and it happens that their corrections often injure their children instead of helping them. Whatever their intentions may have been, fathers desire to form their children to that which they judge best and most profitable for them in this life, but their judgments are often mistaken as a covetous parent who acknowledges no other happiness than wealth. An ambitious man will desire to impress the sentiments of worldly honors upon his children. A superstitious parent will correct his child for not giving himself to that mode of worship he is himself addicted to. And so parents often use their power to extinguish good principles in their children and discourage the beginning of virtue in them. How often are good parents moved with anger in their corrections they inflict? Others, through fondness of indulgence, altogether neglect correction and give rein to the evil of their children. But the discipline of God inflicts are different. He has a perfect knowledge of all things. He is subject to no passion. He never afflicts unless there is need. He never disciplines except for good. God, being infinitely wise, cannot err in His judgment of what is necessary for us. He is not biased by weak affections. David acknowledged this wisdom of God, Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn your truths. God is all-wise and foresees the evil we are quick to run into, and prevents it by affliction. He sends Paul a thorn in the flesh, not so much to correct a present fault, but as to prevent it. 2 Corinthians 12.7, that he might not be lifted up above measure. Sometimes he afflicts to make the graces apparent. God afflicted Job in his goods, in his persons, that the truth of his faith and patience might be seen in the midst of his sufferings. This to the praise of God. He sends no trials unless there is a need for them, and that the trial of faith may be found to praise and honor. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Parents, often use their weakness and not their wisdom. God's affliction are kingly acts, but not separated from wise and gracious intentions. But the apostle explains the particular profit 
which God aims at, that we might be partakers of his holiness, that is, to refine their drips and purify them for himself, and render them fit for the place where nothing dwells that is unholy. Earthly parents correct their children that they may learn useful arts and manners in the world. External profit is chiefly what they aim at. God corrects that his holiness may be communicated here and blessings after. This seems to be a proper explanation of what he meant by live in the former verse. In the same sense, we are said to be partakers of the divine nature, 2 Peter 1.4, where we have a portrait of the nature and holiness of God drawn in our souls by the Spirit. It is not that we may possess the holiness of God, but partake of the holiness of God. The characteristics of his image formed in us by the gospel and by afflictions are sparks of his holiness. The original is in God. The picture of it is in the believer. As light is in the sun, but some splendor of it in the glass upon which it shines. This God works by afflictions. He makes us exercise ourselves more in repentance. He weakens our love for the flesh that would alienate us from God if it could. We cleave faster to Christ by, by faith, who is the spring of holiness. Oh, to more earnestly thirst to draw from the fountain and pursue those things that are heavenly. Parents correct their children to imitate their manners. God corrects him to bring them to an imitation of his holiness. Parents discipline to make their children like them. God disciplines to make his children conform to him. God's disciplines are not always punishments. They are not inflicted for payment of sin. God aims at our profit. A judge does not regard the profit of a criminal when he condemns him to punishment, but only the honor of the law, and to repair the offense done to the law by the violation of it to satisfy that justice which has been violated. But God aims at the advantage of the believing sufferers and makes them suffer to make them gracious and glorious. This is a great argument to love God even for afflictions. In all things give thanks, says the apostle. In God's whipping, there is a great reason to give thanks because of the good fruit from it. An earthly father gives his inheritance to his son, but not his intentional character. But God communicates his holiness to his children this way. How patiently should we bear God's discipline? He never strikes except with a good reason. He never strikes his children but for their good. Holy blows should be received without complaint. That which is not only profitable but necessary calls not only for our patience but our willing embrace when God wisely inflicts it. Besides, our afflictions are short. They are no longer than this life. There might be a reason to complain if it were an eternal pain, but it is only for a little time. We should attempt to answer the reason God disciplines to better form ourselves to that holiness He aims at. In this way, we are to embrace every motion of the Spirit in our afflictions. For that purpose, the rod has a voice and the Spirit has a voice, and both must be listened to. Because it is a hard matter to be without complaints, the Apostle still urges it further and prevents the grounds for complaints. The complaint usually is the sharpness of a rod and sets the pain and fruit in opposition to one another. Verse 11, Now no discipline for the present seems to be joyous but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are exercised by it. It is confessed that afflictions are painful, but it is in appearance only. They seem so, but they are like a beautiful face hidden under a frightening mask 
or as a bitter potion that nauseates but purges of worms or disease. I confess suffering is painful, but good. It is good if you keep the outcome of it remembered. The outcome makes a vast difference between things because the trouble and grief which is in every discipline makes our flesh to apprehend it as evil. All afflictions are painful to the flesh. God does not expect that we should be stoics, emotionless, without a sensation or grief. Christ himself has set us a pattern of it. He shed tears for the death of his friend Lazarus and shed drops of blood at the approaching of his sufferings. His soul was sorrowful even to the death. He was tempted in all things like us, yet without sin. It is no sin to grieve under suffering or to complain of suffering so long as it is without the whispered murmuring of the Israelite. If we do not have a sense of suffering, we can never be capable of the profit from the affliction. Without some suffering, affliction would leave us worse than it finds us. As we must listen to God when He speaks, so we should fear God when He strikes. At first, the trouble of a strike is that we mistake the point of it. We cannot imagine in our affliction that a root so bitter should bear a joyful fruit. As the nauseating medicine afflicts the patient so much sometimes that he scarcely think of the good which will come of it. David often is full of complaints while he is under an affliction, and seems often to have no sense of anything but the present troubles. But afterwards he has no sentiments but of the gracious fruit, in faithfulness you have afflicted me. It is good for me that I have been afflicted. Your rod comforts me. Experience shows a truth which the present grief will not often allow us to consider. Though afflictions are painful, the fruit is gracious to a believer. Experience corrects the false judgment we have while we are under a stroke. Indeed, afflictions themselves feel like a means to cool our affections to holiness, to extinguish in our minds the spark of godliness, and to make us despair and distrust the grace of God. But... God, in His sovereign wisdom, does so to dispose and manage them, that He makes them end in a happy fruit. By the grace of God, afflictions break off our worldly inclinations, impassion our prayers, awaken us out of our spiritual lethargies, put us upon a review of ourselves. Affliction brings us to seek in God and Christ the true remedy of all our evils, and by this means, the trouble of our souls is calmed, and an assurance of the grace of God promoted. The joy of the Holy Spirit is often strongest in us when afflictions are sharpest upon us. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 Having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And though it is not always so with a believer, yet after the affliction has done its work, God comes in with comfort and joy, and recovery follows bitter medicine. Let us then have a right understanding of afflictions. Let us not think that God intends to destroy us when He begins to strike us. We are often in the same error the apostles were in when they saw Christ walking upon the waves in the dead of the night and saw the terrors of a storm. He was coming to support them, but they imagined He was a ghost coming to harm them. The flesh makes us think God often is our enemy when He is our friend. But as Christ cried out to them, do not fear, it is I. So the apostle does to believers here. Do not fear. Though the pain is great, 
the fruit is peaceable, if the flesh suffers, it is for the good of the spirit. The outcome will show that all things work together for the good of those who love God. Let patience and faith have their perfect work. Affliction makes the beginning sad, and patience will make the success glorious. Had the Israelites believed God's promise of deliverance, they would have not murmured at the Red Sea. God brought them to the Red Sea to deliver them from the Egyptians, and made all their fears end in joy and triumph. The more we trust God, the more He is concerned about our welfare. The more we trust ourselves, the more He does to strike us. Committing our way to the Lord keeps our minds calm and composed. Proverbs 16.3 Commit your way to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. God has always an eye upon those who fear Him. Psalm 33.18.19 Not to keep distress and affliction from them, but to grow them in it and give them a new fruit from the rod. God brings us into trials that we may have more lively experiences of His tenderness and wisdom. We should submit our way to the guidance of God's wisdom with an obedience to His will and a reliance on His goodness, and then success will be gracious in this life and glorious in that which is to come, a peaceable fruit of righteousness in earth and heaven. Wait upon God. God has as much wisdom to bring an affliction to a good outcome as he has love at first to inflict it. When we think about Stephen Charnock's sermon here on affliction and how God uses it and how it is not always a bad thing, but it's something that can be used to grow us, I think about so many of the lives of the men on Revive Thoughts who, whether it's Stephen Charnock living through the English Civil War, whether it's, uh, you know, just so many different people living through persecution and the Reformation's persecutions from the Roman Empire, all these different things and struggles they have. In fact, I would say nobody really on this show lived a life with no struggle at all. There's always something, some affliction. And part of what makes their stories so encouraging is seeing how God preserved them and had them triumph over so many of these things. And we wouldn't have those stories. We wouldn't be encouraged by men like this if it weren't for the affliction they went through in the first place. So God does use these things for the good. And when we study church history, we can see how these uh, tough moments and the encouragement that we can get from them and seeing people overcome them can be something that can inspire us to be stronger, I think, as well, and to continue down the path. Because who knows, you might be struggling with something today that 100 years from now people are being encouraged to, uh, to stay strong in because of what you do right now. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Josh with Shepherd's Cast. Josh is a content creator that operates both on Facebook and Instagram, making both memes and podcasts. He just recently started a podcast that focuses on verse-by-verse breakdowns of specific passages. You can check out his website in the show notes below. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, we also want to encourage you, uh, especially if you're maybe new to the show, go subscribe to Revive Studios' other podcasts. If you don't know, we have Martyrs and Missionaries, uh, where we tell the stories of different martyrs and missionaries. We also have Forgotten Hollywood with Chris Wineland, which tells you the very interesting stories of how the church and Hollywood have interacted throughout the last hundred years, and probably many stories that you do not know. We also have Revive Devos, which is two to 
three minute daily devotionals that come out every single day that you can enjoy and that will hopefully edify you and grow you a little bit closer to God as you listen to great thoughts from the past. So make sure you subscribe to all those shows and that you're listening to all the shows here at Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.